All right, so we're going to go to Esther this morning, Esther chapter 5, as we continue walking through this story in the Old Testament uh, of this young lady named Esther who became queen. We only have a few more weeks. Uh, Really, we'll be done with this uh, right before Easter. So we only have a few more weeks in the story, but it has been a powerful story uh, of God's work in the life of someone who maybe could have been overlooked, who could have been insignificant, and yet God chooses the overlooked and the insignificant oftentimes to be His greatest instruments of power. Have you found that? You know, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Have you found that to be true? When you surrender and you just acknowledge, yeah, I don't have it. I, I don't have enough. I don't have the strength today. I don't have the, the, the knowledge, the wisdom today. And I'm going to let the Lord be my guide. He shows up and he does things beyond what we can imagine. So we're going to go to Esther chapter 5 today. And we're going to look at a story, a part of the story here that fascinates me. So as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I'd like to try my hand at inventing something. I would love to make a machine um, that works kind of like on the principle of an x-ray. You know, when you, when you like stand in front of the x-ray and they can see through and they can see your bones and see if something's broken or whatever. But instead of an x-ray, I would like a, like, like a soul ray. You know what I mean? Like, like a machine that can look through the outer appearance of you and see what's happening in your heart. See what's actually behind what you do. See what your motivation is. I think if I could invent something like that, I think I might do pretty well, don't you? It wouldn't be useful to be able to see through someone's words, through someone's actions, to see down to their soul, down to their heart, to find out if they are for you or if they are for them. You know what I mean? Sometimes we make mistakes there and it's painful when we make mistakes there. Um, I think I might call it the selfish or not meter, you know? Are you, are you selfish in this? Is this a self-motivated thing or is it not a self-motivated thing? But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, if I ever invent that, if that ever were possible, the best use of it would probably be to start by putting it on me. Because a lot of times I play games in my head about how selfless I am and about how giving I am, but it's really just about me. It's really about what people think of me or, or how I feel about it. Isn't that true? We like to point out the selfishness in others, but we like to turn a blind eye to it in ourselves. So I wonder how much selfishness runs our life. The reality is all of us tend to live in self-interest. It is a natural bent of humanity. We go into any situation, into any activity of life, and we kind of ask this question, what's in it for me? Do I like this or not like this? Do I want this or do I not want this? And in that way, which is a natural way for every human to approach every situation in life, we tend to let me be the center of my life. We define a good experience or a bad experience by how it makes me feel, by what I get from it, whether I'm comfortable or uncomfortable, whether I like it or don't like it, whether it produces good emotions or bad emotions, right? That's what we tend to do. Hey, are you having a good day or are you having a bad day? Well, let me see. What has my day made me feel like? What, what has happened to me today? You know, if you were one of those people that, that won the hundreds of millions of dollars, hey, are you having a good day? Yeah, I'm having a great day. 
Why? Because I just got a bunch of stuff that I think I'll really enjoy for me. You know what I mean? That's kind of how we operate. Unfortunately for us, we follow Jesus Christ, who said this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. So there's this natural tendency inside of us, and then we have this this master, this Lord, our, our God incarnate, who comes and gives us this instruction that cuts right against that grain. Says to go a whole different way. And then on top of that, Jesus went off and laid down his life for you and I. He acted selflessly and he says to you and I, come live selfless with me. Clearly, Jesus defined what was good and desirable differently than a me-centered life. Do you get that? Does that challenge you every single day? Do we know how to live selfless? Do we even know where to start? And if we do, how are we doing at it? How are we doing in the battle against selfishness? Well, we've already talked about the fact that it is a natural tendency of of humanity just inside of me. The problem isn't outside of me. The problem is me. However... We do live in a very me world, don't we? It's all me all the time. You know, if you walk into a job interview and you're like, I don't know, I might be a decent worker. I don't, I try not to think too highly of myself. What's going to happen to your application? We're going to file that away under the uh, never tell them again, you know? It feels like we live in a world where you have to be all about you. You have to be self-promoting. You have to be looking out for number one. Because if if you act in a way that Jesus calls us to, you're going to get eaten alive. It feels like you're just going to get trampled under others. And it can look like, as you look around, that selfish people, the me-first people, actually win. They get the stuff they want. They're not afraid to ask for it. They're not afraid to go get it. They're the successful people. But listen, we live, you and I, with a belief that one day we stand before our Creator. Don't we? Because of that, I want to ask you this question. In light of the fact that you believe one day we will stand before our Creator, do you think that when you stand before God, you will wish that you had lived more selfishly? Do you think you'll be like, now, Lord, I'm just so sorry that I wasn't so much about me? Or do you think you might feel like, I wish I wasn't so much about me? What do you think it'll be when you stand before the Lord? And even if you don't go all the way to there, even if you don't go all the way to to standing before God, what do you genuinely believe about real life? Do you believe that living self-centeredly will bring satisfaction to your soul? Do you believe that it will bring deep connection with others, that putting me at the center of my life will make me happy? Do you believe that? We're going to take a look at that today. Now, a note before we dive into this story. Let me just say this. There are some of you here who will hear what I'm saying and will use it to mean that you should let others walk all over you and destroy you. That is absolutely not what I am saying. Let me be as clear as I can be. It is not selfish for you to live with a healthy soul. Let me go back and say that again. 
It is not selfish or self-centered for you to live with a healthy soul. It is actually God's call on your life. It is being faithful to what God says to you to take care of your soul. So don't mistake what I'm talking about to mean that you should let someone abuse you or manipulate you or, or work you over and grind you into dust. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not saying that you should be a doormat, okay? But I am saying we've got to get out of our own way and we've got to start recognizing how selfishness poisons our soul. So we're going to look at Haman's experience today. And it's clear who is the center of Haman's life. And I think you're going to see that very clearly as we read this part of the story. But what I want you to see is the experience that he has by being self-centered. And then as we look at that, I want to just kind of like ask you, take a good look in the mirror and say, who's the center of my life? And we're going to look at some of the ways that you can uh, diagnose that and, and, and opt into that. So we're going to pick up in verse 9, and we're really just going to start with just verse 9 of chapter 5. And, and so remember, we're coming out of Haman has just been to a banquet with Queen Esther and King Xerxes, or Hashuerus is his Hebrew name, and he, he's just come out of this banquet, and he's, he's on his way home from that, and, and things seem to be going well for him. And what you're going to find is this. One of the fastest ways to expose when we're living self-centered is to come up against something we don't like. Fastest way for you to find out who's at the center of your life is to bump into something in your life that you don't like. And as an intensifier, something you don't like and you can't control. Suddenly, it's all about me. So let's watch. Let's see what happens for Haman. So verse 9, it says this, Haman went out that day from the banquet, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Wow. So here we've got Haman coming out. I would say Haman has had a pretty good month. (laughs) It's been pretty good for Haman. He has been elevated to the second highest position in the kingdom, the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. He has ridiculous amounts of money and wealth. And on top of that, he's in power and he has found a way for his plan to destroy his enemy to be enacted, to come to fruition. It has been adopted and approved by the king himself. On top of that, last night or, or, or this night as he's walking out, the queen herself has invited him and the king, only the two of them, to come to a special banquet that she's prepared. It's been a pretty good month. And so when the Bible says he walked out in high spirits, it's talking about high as can be. He is high on life and and happy as could be, just filled up with, man, this is great. This is awesome. This is wonderful. Then there's that word, but. But. In an instant, he is full of rage. He goes from top of the world to miserable like that. Why? What's the transformation? What's the difference between that? It is one man's response that he doesn't like and that he can't control. It is Mordecai who will not show him honor. He will not show him fear. He will not show him reverence by kneeling down. Um, And so because of that, 
more, Haman goes from top of the world to miserable. Now, one man has that kind of influence over you. Why is that such a big deal? He must think an awful lot of Mordecai, right? He thinks he's a great man, a powerful man. He really respects him. Not at all. He hates him. He thinks he's lower than the dirt on my shoes. And that's what gets him so mad. He thinks Mordecai is nothing. And yet Mordecai won't show him honor. He's not a friend. He's not the king. He's really a nobody. But because Haman doesn't like what Mordecai's action makes him feel like or makes him look like, he doesn't like Mordecai's choice. He goes from overjoyed to stoved in a heartbeat. The symptom of living self-centered is unstable emotions. A roller coaster ride. If you're around people who are self-centered, you just hang on, right? Because here it comes. They're happy right now, but it could just take a heartbeat and they're miserable, right? How about you? How much does it take to knock you off your joy? What does it take for you to go from feeling like you are blessed and you are, God is a good father and he loves you and takes care of you to feeling like life is awful and terrible and miserable? What's it take? If you are self-centered, it doesn't take much. It just takes something that you don't like and you can't control. And it pulls out the part of my humanity that says, but it should be about me. My life should be about me. It, I mean, emotionally, we respond to circumstances, absolutely. I'm not talking about the momentary response. I'm talking about the settled decision of an approach to life. This is not just a momentary response for Haman. This is a fruit of the way that Haman has lived his whole life. And it's the lens through which he sees his life is me. What is going on for me? Every moment is evaluated in relationship to whether I'm getting what I want right now. For Haman right here, what did he want? He wanted honor. It is the difference for him between feeling honored and dishonored. And that's the difference between him feeling overjoyed and him feeling absolutely full of rage. What do people think of me? You will never be more vulnerable, especially as you live self-centered and self-focused, than when you care about what people think about you. Now, care is such a nebulous word. So let me just say it in a different way. When what people think about you makes you feel important or unimportant, makes you feel like you matter or don't matter. I care what people think about me because I don't want to be a jerk. I want to be, I think there's a good reflection in in my response to people. I care. But what you think about me does not determine whether I matter or not. Does not determine whether I'm important, whether I'm significant whether I'm lovable or, or someone who is you know, worthy, whether I belong. What you think about me can't determine me, right? So there's a difference between caring and being determined. This guy, this one little you know, uh, nobody will not show me honor. And so suddenly it determines how Haman is, whether he's happy or enraged. When Haman feels like a big deal, respected and important, he's happy. But when he notices someone isn't impressed, he feels disrespected and he's filled with rage. Let me say to you, some of you, guys, some of you folks, when you feel disrespected, you blow up. When you feel like you're not getting the proper respect from people, you blow up. 
That is a sign, that is a clear indication that you are living self-centered. I'm not saying if you're a parent and your child is disrespectful to you that you shouldn't address it. You should. But you should not address it like their opinion of you changes who you are. You should address it with them because they need to respect and they need to honor and because that's what God calls them to. But not because whether you do or don't, I'm a different person. My experience is different. My life, my emotions are different, right? If, if you're a husband and you feel disrespected from your wife and you blow up, you are self-centered in that relationship. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it can't determine how you are, what other people think of you. It can't determine There's a difference between Haman's rage and our rage and a conversation about showing respect. In one instance, my emotional and my mental well-being depend on getting the reaction I think I deserve. And the other, it doesn't. And by the way, we're we're not just talking about respect. That's what Haman's dealing with here. But, you know, it's when I'm unable or, or blow up at feeling unimportant or unloved or unappreciated. If those things set you off, then you need to take a look in the mirror at who's at the center of your life. Who is the one that determines whether my life is going in a good direction or a bad direction? So Haman walks out from a banquet, top of the world, flies into a rage. Now, what we're going to see is this isn't just a momentary experience. He's going to kind of try to work through this because Haman says, his own testimony, this This Mordecai and his disrespect ruins everything. He just can't get over it. He's got to change something in order for him to be okay. So pick up with me at verse 10 down to verse 13. It says this. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Do you get what it's like to be self-centered? Do you understand what's going on here? First of all, Haman's miserable, and so what does he do first? He gathers together a bunch of people that he knows he can depend on being on his side, right? Because misery loves company. What misery does not like is confrontation. (laughs) Hey, get over it. What's wrong with you? We don't like that. We like people to pull around us that will go, you know what? You're right. Those are lousy people. That's a horrible circumstance. That's a ridiculous situation. You shouldn't have to deal with that. We don't want someone when we are self-centered, to call us on it. We want someone to come by and say, you know what, you're right. You should be the center of your life. It is appealing to have someone tell us that we have the right to be upset. Isn't that appealing? If, if someone has hurt you and someone has wronged you, that sense of validation, there's a good thing to that, that you know, there's a healthy thing to kind of like, I'm checking my brain, should I be hurt over this? There's a good thing to that. But there's a fleshly part of it that loves when people agree that I've been wronged, that I have the right to be upset. I have the right to be bitter about this. I have the right to it. Because that means I don't have to do anything. I can just sit in my bitterness, in my anger. 
There's a difference between genuine understanding and sympathy. When someone comes and says, man, I know it's hard. Man, I understand that, it, that this really hurts. I understand that you were really wronged here. That's one thing. But the other thing is when we use what someone comes to offer us as, as connected uh, empathy and we use it to rationalize feeding and living and sitting in our bitterness. Someone who's living in bitterness is living with themselves as the focus of their life. We want to be right about being bitter. And so our tolerance for a faithful friend who would come to us and confront us about it is in direct proportion to our self-centeredness. If I am all about me and someone comes along the way and says, you're doing the wrong thing, I go, but don't you understand what they did? I've said, I cannot do anything about my bitterness because it's not about my self-centeredness. It's about what they did to me. So I'm now enslaved to what someone else did. And I somehow think that that's a good thing because self-centered living lies to me. So let's take a quick look at Haman's speech. Let's look at the outline of his speech because basically what he says is, I have every reason to be impervious to insult, that no one can shake me. I have every reason to be stable in my joy, but I can't. So he calls together all his friends and he boasts about some things. He boasts about wealth. He boasts about his sons. He boasts about honor from the king. He boasts about being in this exclusive party, two times in this exclusive party. So what do all these things have in common? All of these things are a type of scorekeeping. Haman wants to know if he's winning or not. Did you see that? I mean, obviously wealth. That's still a scorekeeping thing. How much do you have versus how much does someone else have? We define wealth as power, as control, as security, as the ability to satisfy my desires. We, I have this idea of wealth as an answer to most of the ills of life. And so did Haman. And so he says, when I look at my wealth, I have so much wealth that I can boast about it to you and you're not going to confront me on it because I'm right. It's his vast wealth. Then he boasts about his sons, which is... Seemed maybe a little bit of a weird thing. But an ancient historian tells us that in Persia, your level of honor was directly related to the amount of sons that you had. And that same historian tells us that Haman had several hundred sons. Yeah, it, can you feel the scorekeeping? Haman's like, oh, nobody's going to beat me. I'm going to be the biggest. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to win at this. And then he says, my position with the king is above all others. I am the only one who has this spot in all of the land. And by the way, the queen has not invited me once. She's invited me twice to an exclusive party. He's keeping score. When you are keeping score in comparison with other people, who's at the center of your life? Of course you are. It's got to be you. Haman believes what is default thinking for humanity The key to happiness or misery is when I get what I want, when I am winning, when I have more than other people. His life philosophy is that being able to get what you want is the answer to being happy. But he already recognizes that that's not true. Because as he goes around and he says, I have everything I want, then he says, but I'm miserable. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever walked far enough down that that road of fantasy 
and found it, like realized, like, wow, it came true. That, that dream that I dreamed came true. That's a wonderful, awesome thing. Except not as good as I thought. It's still kind of, huh, that didn't solve everything, you know? Maybe it was, uh, I hate my job, and if I could only get a different job, everything would be all right. And then you get a different job, and you're like, these people are jerks too. <laughs> Maybe it was like, you know, I, I, I just don't make enough money, and if I made enough money, everything about right. And then you make more money, and you still have problems. And you're like, well, I guess I just need more money. Or maybe it's you're single and you're like, if only I could be with someone, everything would be okay. And then you're with somebody and it's worse, <laughs> right? I've seen it go the other way where someone's married and they're like, my, my spouse is the problem and if I could just get rid of them, everything would be all right. And then they get rid of them and it's not all right. It's miserable in a whole different way. It's the way that our flesh lies to us. And Haman even recognizes it. I've kept score and I don't understand this. I'm winning at everything, but I'm miserable. He doesn't have the the wherewithal or the willingness to look anywhere else at but what he thinks should make him better. What does he think should make him better? I'm winning. I got all this stuff. I'm powerful. I'm popular, but it doesn't work. I'm frustrated. What makes sense that it should make me happy turns out to be so empty. So I'm going to ask you, what if everything you're wishing for, what if everything that you think would fix your life and make it better, all of the changes in circumstance and all of the scorekeeping stuff, what if all of that stuff doesn't fix your life? What if it's a chasing, like Solomon says, a chasing of the wind? What if you're spending your days and your years and your energy and and your relationships and all of your talent and ability, what if you're spending on stuff that will come up empty in the end? Haman's finding this to be true, and it's a moment of opportunity for the light to go on. But the light doesn't go on. Haman says, none of it matters because of Mordecai. And we learn that when I live self-centeredly, it drains life of any joy, any satisfaction, while at the same time promising me that if I could just up the volume, if I could just amp up the effort, it it eventually will pay off. Well, look at how Haman, how far he's gone. How much more do you need to prove out that this isn't true? Right? I guess how much more do we need to recognize that living with me as the center of my life is never going to make me okay? So, verse 14 Haman's wife finds a way to make him happy again, okay? Now, I want you to see what she she suggests. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. Yeah, These are really wise people. They're like, yeah, you know what? The problem is you just, you haven't settled every score yet. You're keeping score, but you just have to win one more round and then you'll be okay. Now, through eyes of faith, I can look at that and go, that's just foolishness. But through eyes of humanity, it always makes sense. It will always make sense to you that just going a little bit harder into me as the center of my life, going a little bit harder after what will make me happy, what I like, what I want, will fix it for me. Have you ever heard the phrase, the cure is worse than a disease? Haman is miserable, and the cure that they suggest is, 
dive more deeply into this philosophy that's led you here anyway. Just get what you want. You know? Why is that going to make him feel better? And it does. It immediately makes him feel better. Why does it make him feel better? Is Mordecai suddenly dead? No, he's still out there disrespecting him. Why does that make Haman's flesh feel better? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because the, the Bible, this, this version talks about it as a pole. Uh, other versions talk about it as a gallows. It, the idea is it's some big structure for a public execution, whether it's a hanging or an impaling or whatever it is. There's, there's a little bit of ambiguity to what exactly that was, but there's no ambiguity to this. Haman loved the idea of a public victory. You're going to disrespect me? I'm going to publicly put on display that, that I'm better than you. He loved that idea. And you know what else he loved? He loved the idea that it was going to happen right now. In the morning, go to the king, and he will put him on the pole in the morning. He will hang him publicly in the morning. He doesn't have to wait anymore. Originally, he had to wait months and months, almost a year, for this all to come to fruition. But now, he doesn't have to wait anymore. When I live self-centered, I live without the willingness to wait on what God has and on the way God wants to unfold my life. And so the idea, of, uh, you know, the idea of having a pole or a gallows set up is a great idea, but actually having it built is even better. And so you kind of get this sense. He's going home from the banquet. He goes and complains, and they come up with this plan. And it says he went and had it done. He had the pole set up. Now, when is the next banquet? Tomorrow night. When's he going to go ask the king? Tomorrow morning. So when are they setting up this gallows? Tonight. Right now. I'm going to send my workers out. Go, go build it right now. That's why Haman is delighted. He's delighted because he doesn't have to do anything but what he wants. And he can have it because he has the power, because he has the money, because he has influence to have it done now. He feels strong and in control. Now, let me, let me kind of just back up before we wrap this up. Let me just say this. One of the truths that comes out of this, that Haman is delighted. He's, he's overjoyed, he's full of rage, and now he's delighted that, that Mordecai is going to die in the morning. All over the place, right? But one of the truths that you can pick up from this is this. Part of the reason his delight is evil is because he's happy for the destruction of someone else. People of God, let me say this to you. It is never righteous to rejoice over the downfall of someone else. Never. We, we are much more comfortable with this idea because of the society in which we live, because we have open elections and we can criticize public officials and, ha, I'm glad that they whatever. People of God do not get excited over the destruction of someone else. Even if it was deserved. Even if it removes problems from your life, you do not take glee in the fall of another. It is wickedness. Why? Here's why. Because when I am happy that you are destroyed, it is based in, rooted in, grounded in a pride to which I am not entitled. A pride that says, I am better than you. At least there. There's no humility. There's no Godwardness. There's no embracing the heart of God. What should we do when a wicked person falls? We should mourn. We should be sobered by the reality that sin brings death. Every time, sin brings death. 
that I am susceptible to the same lies that brought them to their demise, and I want to live humbly before the Lord. And as people who believe that Jesus died to save people, that he gave his life for the world because God loved the world and gave his son, as people who believe that, our hearts should ache for redemption of every single person. When Jesus said, if, you're, if someone curses you, bless them. If they abuse you, pray for them. When someone does you wrong, forgive them. What he's saying is, get yourself out of the center of your life. Isn't he? Because if life is about you, you can't do that. But when life is not about you, then you can follow what Jesus says is the way to live. And so I would say, we are never okay to be rejoicing about God's justice being poured out on people. We should sorrow and we should ache for salvation and redemption for those who are lost in rebellion. As we close this, Haman is delighted. He is very happy. But what I want you to know is his happiness is going to be very temporary. Before the sun goes down tomorrow night, he's dead. Your emotions lie to you, folks. Your emotions don't tell you the truth. And when you are self-centered, you are more vulnerable to being deceived about how life actually is. Haman thinks life is grand, life is great. I'm in the best position. I am safe and secure. But what he doesn't do is bow the knee before God. I believe with all my heart that this is God giving Haman one more reality check. And in the morning, he's actually going to give him one more. We'll see that next week. If nothing else, I hope that you grab a hold of this truth because it's so easy to grab a hold of the lie. When we pursue self-interest, when we live self-centered, it makes so much sense that that's going to make me good and okay and happy and fulfilled. But what it does when I pursue self-interest is it brings self-destruction. It's exactly what it did for Haman, and it will do it to you every time. If you are at the center of your life, you are headed for self-destruction. So, how, centered, how self-centered do you live? How self-focused are you? Does your life in some way, does your outlook in some way resemble Haman's? I believe God's calling to us today to say, will you just get out of the way? Is there something in this life for you to live for that's more than you? How it makes you feel, what you, what's important to you, your comfort, your enjoyment, your desires? Is there anything more important in your life than you? How self-powered are you? Is the answer to bitterness and misery like Haman's? Well, what am I going to do about that? And what can I do? And I'm going to fix what I don't like. Or when hard and bitter times come, is your faith placed in someone else? Or is your life self-powered? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never thought about how susceptible you are to self-focus. Well, How do you define a good day? How do you define a bad day? Is it by whether you like what's happening or not? When misery overtakes you, are you going to double down on selfishness? Or are you going to surrender to God's call to live selfless? Some of the clues we saw this morning. Self-centered living will cause you to have wild emotional swings. Rage shows up out of nowhere, depending on people's reaction to you. And whether or not you feel like you're winning 
in whatever score you're keeping. Self-centered living will promise you that grabbing what you want will make you happy and secure, but instead will leave you stressed out and worried and in the end, destroyed. Self-centered living will always trade the joy and the peace of living satisfied with the turmoil of living upset with the way things are going. How do we live? This is a choice you have to make every single day. This is a choice you make today in this moment. This is a choice you'll make when you wake up tomorrow and that alarm goes off and you don't want to get up and go face those weirdos at work again, right? This is a choice that you will make when your children don't do what you say, when your spouse doesn't respond the way you, should, you think they should, when your money in the bank is not enough to pay the bills that are there. This is a response that you and I make every day. Who's going to be at the center of my life? Who's at the center of your life? I'm going to ask you to live with Jesus at the center of your life. If you don't know his salvation, you can know that today. You can get out of the center and say, Lord, I can't fix my life, but you can. And you can receive him as your savior. He'll wash you clean and make you new. And you can cry out to him even now, Lord, come and save me. And he will. But if you're a believer, he's already supposed to be at the center of your life. Why do you keep nudging him out? If you see some of Haman in you, let's get rid of it. Let's ask God to take it away. Let's ask God to show us the truth again and to dig down some deep roots into that. So let's close this morning with a word of prayer and we'll be on our way. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example you give us in such detail of this man who lived with himself as the focus of his life. I pray that your spirit would speak to us as your people, that we would turn away from from the temptation and the the pull to make us the point of our lives, to be a me-centered person. Father, I pray that you would let us live for Jesus Christ, that you would let us serve him and follow him, that you would teach us how to live selflessly. This morning, maybe we've seen the problem. Maybe we've seen it deeper than ever before, or maybe for the first time. But Father, don't let us stay stuck in the problem. Show us the solution of walking and living by faith, trusting in you and making you the very center of our life. Father, I pray this for your people as we go, that your spirit would go with us, that you would lead us, that you would teach us, and that you would fill us. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.